Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Some activists in Michigan want to show President Biden they can cost him the election if they want. The lead starts right now. The power of the vote in Battleground, Michigan, how a small but determined group of Democrats wants to seize this moment to send a message to President Biden. They are demanding an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza and military aid cut off to Israel. They want Democrats tomorrow to vote uncommitted instead of for Biden. I'm going to talk about it with Congressman Dean Phillips, Biden's top Democratic challenger in the primary race. Plus, Was Alexei Navalny about to be released in a prisoner swap with two Americans, former Marine Paul Whelan and Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Grishkovich? Aides of the anti-corruption activist are revealing negotiations that were apparently in the final stages for a Russian hitman in a German prison right before Navalny died under suspicious circumstances in that Arctic penal colony. Plus, The landmark case before the U.S. Supreme Court that could theoretically drastically change what you see on your social media feeds. It would essentially discourage content moderation, perhaps even allowing the most vile stuff under the banner of free speech onto your phone and laptop. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our 2024 lead because we're just hours away from the opening of polling sites in the very first battleground state primary. This is a state that delivered the White House to Joe Biden in 2020, is set to play a similarly important role this year. Tomorrow, voters in Michigan will head to the polls to cast their ballots in both the GOP and Democratic primaries. On the Republican side, Donald Trump is hoping to continue to steamroll his way to the Republican nomination after trouncing Nikki Haley in her home state of South Carolina Saturday night. But the dynamics on the Democratic side will be something we have not seen so far this election cycle, with some Democratic officials and organizers asking Michigan voters to vote for uncommitted instead of President Joe Biden or anyone else. They are hoping enough protest votes will send a message to the White House that they are unhappy in Michigan with the president's handling of how Israel is conducting the war in Gaza. The effort is headed by a group called Listen to Michigan, led by the sister of Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. The group is calling on Biden to demand an immediate ceasefire and to stop sending military aid to Israel. Unclear what its position is on Hamas or Hamas releasing the hostages they've been holding. CNN's Diane Gallagher is on the ground in Michigan speaking to these organizers who say, while this uncommitted campaign is just about the primary as of right now, It should also serve as a larger warning to President Biden about what could theoretically happen in November if he does not listen to them. 
Free, free, free Palestine! A pivotal November battleground. The road to the White House runs through Michigan. You don't win without Michigan. But some Democrats are using Tuesday's primary to put President Joe Biden on notice. A warning to Biden and his administration that they need to hear um, our calls and heed our demands and respond to what it is that we're asking for, which is an immediate and a permanent ceasefire. Using their ballots to protest the president's handling of the war in Gaza by voting uncommitted in the Democratic primary. It's a humanitarian vote. It's a protest vote. The grassroots Listen to Michigan campaign. Vote uncommitted. Launched by members of the state's large Arab American community just three weeks ago, has expanded to count progressives and young voters among its supporters, like Pontiac City Councilman Mikel Goodman. Because we are often told many times that the power that we have as citizens in the U.S. is through the power of the ballot. And this is us using that power. No one who is voting uncommitted uh, wants Trump. They, they want what is happening in Gaza to, to stop. More than 30 state and local elected officials endorsed the campaign, as did Rashida Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress. If you want us to be louder, then come here and vote uncommitted. Now, organizers say for most, today's message is about the primary, but there's a lingering warning. You need to call for a ceasefire because it will save lives and because it's the necessary thing to do politically. Otherwise, you, President Biden, will be handing the White House to Donald Trump. The Biden campaign has acknowledged Michigan's importance in this election. But allies of the president aren't quite sounding alarms over the uncommitted primary strategy yet. I'm hoping and expecting that these folks will come vote for Joe Biden in November. But right now, they, ha they have an issue they want to brought attention to, and it's working. That's why we have an early presidential primary. The uncommitted campaign's goal is modest. Our threshold is 10,000 uh, uncommitted votes um, because that strategy is based off of the numbers that Trump won in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. In 2020, Biden won Michigan by more than 150,000 votes. But some Biden supporters, like former Congressman Andy Levin, say the president's prospects this November are uncertain. I mean, I'm going to do everything I can to get him elected in November. All I'm saying is I don't know if we can succeed unless we change course. And by the way, it's the right thing to do. He says he voted uncommitted in the primary, not because his support for the president is wavering. Well, I think the great danger for Joe Biden here in the Michigan primary is that he would win with no indication that he has a problem, with no visibility of how angry people are. Now, their goal this primary may be a nod to 2016, but the inspiration goes all the way back to 2008 when the uncommitted vote came in second to Hillary Clinton with 40 percent after then candidates Barack Obama and John Edwards removed their name from the ballot after the DNC punished Michigan for moving its primary up. Now, Jake, organizers say that this is a warning shot also because, look, some of these voters, this is not political. This is personal for them. And that if they aren't going to vote for Joe Biden in November, they may just leave it blank or, in their opinion, even worse, stay home altogether in November. The Secretary of State announcing just a few moments ago already over one million early and absentee votes have been cast in this primary here in Michigan. All right, Diane Gallagher in uh, Dearborn, Michigan for us. Thanks so much. Look for special coverage of tomorrow's primary races in Michigan as the polls close. We're going to have results 
and analysis. I'm going to lead coverage along with Anderson Cooper starting at 8 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Turning now to our worldly, the United States and Germany were in early discussions for a prisoner swap this month that would have traded Putin critic Alexei Navalny and two Americans detained in Russia for a convicted Russian assassin currently imprisoned in Germany, according to a Western official. This proposal was apparently in the works just before Navalny's untimely demise, although that official tells CNN no formal offer had been made prior to Navalny's death. The two U.S. citizens were likely Evan Gershkovich of the Wall Street Journal and former Marine Paul Whelan. But when asked by CNN's Matthew Chance, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said he knew, quote, nothing about such an agreement. Matthew Chance reports now for us from Russia as Navalny's family makes plans to finally put him to rest. Mourners still paying their respects at makeshift memorials across Russia. But now, another unexpected twist in Alexei Navalny's tragic saga. According to his close aide, negotiations for the release of the Russian opposition leader were reaching a conclusion. He was poised to be swapped, says his team, before he suddenly died. Navalny should have been free in the coming days because we achieved a decision on his exchange. I received confirmation that negotiations were underway and were at the final stage on the evening of February 15th. On February 16th, Alexei was killed. The Kremlin tells CNN it has no knowledge of any deal and had nothing to do with his death. But Navalny's team insists the Russian opposition figure was killed to prevent him from being swapped. You can see Evan Gershkovich is in there. Hi, Matthew from CNN. Swapped along with US citizens in Russian jails, like Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, accused of espionage. Former US Marine Paul Whelan, serving 16 years for spying. I am innocent of any charge. The US says both are unlawfully detained and has been negotiating for their release, although there's no confirmation Navalny was part of any talks. But the Kremlin has regularly hinted it wants back this man, a former FSB agent, Vadim Krasikov, serving a life sentence in Germany for killing a Chechen dissident. Navalny's team accuses the Kremlin of simply taking the opposition leader off the negotiating table by killing him. Allegations the Kremlin denies. It was clearly communicated to Putin that the only way to get Krasikov is to exchange him for Navalny. Hold on, thought Putin. I can't tolerate Navalny being free. And since they're willing to exchange Krasikov in principle, then I just need to get rid of the bargaining chip. No person, in other words, no problem. The kind of ruthlessness that saw Alexei Navalny poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok in 2020. Recovering only to be arrested and imprisoned on his return to Russia the following year. After news of his unexplained death, hundreds of mourners were detained while laying flowers. Now, Navalny's team says a public farewell, a potential flashpoint, will be held at the end of this week. In death, as in life, it seems, Alexei Navalny continues to challenge the Kremlin's power. Так, подождите, подождите.
Well, Jake, there's currently no exact time or place been given by Navalny's team for the funeral uh, of the late opposition leader. This team saying they have yet to find a venue that is willing to host what promise to be, promises to be such an acutely political event. All right. CNN's Matthew Chance in Moscow, Russia for us. Thank you so much. Turning to Ukraine now, now in its third already brutal year of war with Russia. Today, Russia and Ukraine confirmed Ukrainian troops retreated from the village of Lastochkina, rather, just three miles northwest of Avdivka, where Russia raised its flag last week. Now Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is warning, quote, millions will be killed. Millions, he said, without U.S. aid. CNN's Caitlin Collins just sat down with Zelensky as he weighed in on a potential second Trump presidency. Donald Trump appears that he is on the verge of becoming the Republican nominee for president. The last time I interviewed him, he refused to say if he wanted Ukraine or Russia to win this war. Are you prepared for him to be reelected? The decision who will be the president, decision of your society. But one moment. I hope it's not, I hope it's, it will not be so, but this way, but, but anyway, so if, uh, Donald Trump doesn't, doesn't know whom he will support, Ukraine or Russia, I think that he will have challenges with his society because to support Russia, it means be against Americans. And you can see more of Caitlin's interview with President Zelensky tonight on The Source, which airs at 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. Coming up, Democratic presidential candidate Congressman Dean Phillips as he challenges Joe Biden for his seat in the White House. Stay with us. A tragedy in our national lead, a vigil in Athens, Georgia this afternoon for Lake and Hope Riley. She was the nursing student found dead after going for a jog on the campus of the University of Georgia. The suspect in her brutal killing is facing charges, including felony murder. And his status as an undocumented Venezuelan migrant is now renewing the debate over immigration policies. In fact, the suspect had already been arrested, first in 2022 after entering the U.S. illegally, then again last September, charged with acting in a manner to injure a child less than 17 and also a motor vehicle license violation. The suspect was released before a detainer could be issued, according to U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, all of which has prompted many in Georgia to wonder why this violent man was allowed to remain in the U.S. for so long after so many red flags. CNN's Ryan Young is in Athens, Georgia. Ryan, tell us about the atmosphere at these vigils. Jake, uh, it really wasn't a dry eye in the vicinity of where we were standing. And thousands of students showed up for this vigil today, and I can tell you some of them were upset. In real time, they were checking the people around them to make sure this was a focus on the two lives that have been lost at this campus. I say two lives because one young man apparently took his life um, about a day before Miss Riley died. And obviously this whole campus has come together around that sorrow. For a lot of the kids here, 
this really pierced their bubble, what's surrounded them in terms of this campus. This is the largest university in the state of Georgia. Some 40,000 students attend this, and there hasn't been a murder on this campus in some 20 years. So you can understand why some of them are so emotionally connected to what happened here. We've talked to so many students who say they now don't feel safe walking across campus. And let's not forget here, this was a young lady who apparently loved to run the trails. And as she was running that tra a trail in broad daylight, someone attacked her and they used blunt force trauma to kill her. And that's something that st stood out to so many people. We know police use some of the video cameras in the area to track down the suspect. Um, Jose Abira, and he's 26, and as you said, an undocumented uh, immigrant who many feel should have been kicked out of this country before this ever happened. But now there's so many questions. When you look at the visual, so many people were crying. So many young people went home this weekend because they said they did not feel safe on this campus. And as you expand that out, they're asking questions about what will happen next. And as we remember the young student who was 22, one of her friends stood up there and said she loves sweets. She loved to talk to her friends, and she loved jogging. And that's what she was doing, unfortunately, when someone took her life. And as we've been told before by that coroner, it was blunt force trauma. Now the questions move forward in terms of what will happen next. There's a GoFundMe for the family that's set up for her foundation. There's other, uh, her nursing uh, compadres came out here to show their support for her as well. But honestly, Jake, this is one of those most emotional times I've seen from a student body in terms of how they came together, held hands, and cried for a good amount of time. This campus has been shaken to its core. Jake? Yeah, Ryan Young, it's just not fair. Thank you so much. Coming up, more on the debate about immigration ignited by this tragic killing at UGA. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs... That would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our politics, Leah, the countdown to a partial government shutdown is on. The deadline is just five days away. And at this hour, lawmakers on Capitol Hill do not have any deal to avoid it. Republicans and Democrats are clashing over what are called policy riders. Yesterday, in a letter to colleague, Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer wrote that he hopes Republican House Speaker Johnson, quote, will step up to once again buck the extremists in his caucus and do the right thing. He wants to add uh, the funding for Ukraine and, and funding for Israel into the continuing resolution. 
The speaker fired back on Twitter, or X, accusing Schumer of adding new Democrat demands into the negotiations, writing, at a time of divided government, Senate Democrats are attempting at this late stage to spend on priorities that are farther left than what their chamber agreed on. Let's bring in the political panel to discuss this and much, much more. Doug, let me start with you. Uh, Speaker Johnson's once again again, back in a box. He's going to have to choose whether or not he works with Democrats to avoid a shutdown or um, uh, lose his job, uh, if he does so, by the way, or stick with his coalition Mm -hmm. and there's a government shutdown. And whenever things are going bad for House Republicans, it seems to happen a lot. Mm-hmm. Patrick McHenry likes to quote the talking heads, same as it ever was, same as it ever was. He yeah. does it a lot because this happens a lot. Here we are again. And the reality is there are no good options on the table here. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen on this because of the d- very dynamics uh, you laid out there. Republicans have put themselves between a rock and a hard place and I think overestimated. And this is what, what happened in, in 2013 when we had a shutdown. We had a Republican House with not a big majority. A Democratic Senate and a Democratic president. We thought that we had all the chips, and the reality was we just didn't. And uh, Adrian, uh, tomorrow President Biden's going to meet with four top members of Congress, hoping to avoid the shutdown. Um, pretty important for him to show leadership at this moment, Definitely. I would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's doing the right thing. And, you know, I, who knows what's going to happen to me? I spent 10 years working on the Hill. I think I lived through two the government shutdowns, and we certainly didn't see it like we are now, which is. You know, every time we get to the end of the CR, it feels like this is going to happen again. It's the I continuing think, resolution, the, right. the funding of the government. Exactly, exactly. So I think President Biden is being very smart by coming in and trying to sort of, you know, perhaps broker a peace agreement between these two sides. But look, Speaker Johnson is in a challenging situation because if he does anything in terms of working with Democrats, we saw this happen on, on immigration, uh, he will lose his speakership. So, I mean, I don't feel too sorry for the guy, but that is the situation he's in. And uh, we'll see what happens. And Republicans are asking for things they've attached riders to. Like, mm-hmm. they want to, like, eliminate the salary for the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. I mean, it, it doesn't really seem as though that's an attempt to find some sort of agreement. That's not the most substantive argument that we could be making right now, for sure. Um, President Biden is set to make a rare trip to the U.S.-Mexico border on Thursday. He isn't alone. Former President Trump also plans to uh, visit the border at Eagle Pass, Texas. It's a little more than uh, 300 miles away from Biden, who will be in Brownsville, Texas. That will be the same day. And and Adrian, this will be the first time Biden's going to the border since January of 2023. Um, Do you think this is an acknowledgement that this issue uh, is a much bigger deal than he wanted it to be? Yeah, I think it's certainly an acknowledgement. I think it's really smart that he's going down to the border. But I think it's also the White House playing offense on this. I mean, we had a historic bipartisan agreement between Democrats and Republicans that, you know, a bunch of people had been working on moderates and both on both sides of the aisle for a long time. And it just died because Republicans wouldn't let it get, get through. So I think the administration is actually going to start leaning into this. I think the campaign is going to start leaning into this, not being on the defense, but, but by being on the offense and saying, we Democrats, we the Biden-Harris administration are the ones who want to find a compromise on dealing with the situation at the border, unlike Republicans who, you know, have said that this is their top priority, but when given the chance to actually get something constructive done, they failed to do so. So uh, Republicans obviously seizing on this horrific tragedy at the University of Georgia. Um, this girl, this nursing student killed uh, by an undocumented Venezuelan uh, migrant, and they're seizing on this as an example of Biden's failure to protect the American people and to secure the border. Today, President Trump posted on his uh, social media site, Truth Social, quote, when I am your president, we will immediately seal the border, 
stop the invasion, and on day one, we will begin the largest deportation operation of illegal criminals in American history. May God bless Lake and Riley and her family. That's the poor nursing student that was killed. Our prayers are with you. Your, what's your reaction to that? Well, first, obviously, it's a tragedy, and we should, we should recognize that before the politics enter this. But let's not be naive. Politics enter these things very quickly. And Donald Trump knows how to take advantage of a situation like this and, and, and exploit it. And that's true. You know, Adrian and I worked in the California delegation together in the House of Representatives. And I think if you had said to either of us back then that we could have gotten a deal between Republicans and Democrats of the likes that we got just a few weeks ago, that it would have been impossible. No way could Republicans get so many concessions from Democrats and then not end up with a deal. So we're still in this situation, essentially because we have problems with what the president's been able to do and, and problems with where Republicans are in being able to get anything through their own party. And that's, that isn't changing. So that's interesting because, Doug, the Republican at the table here is saying that the fact that Trump torpedoed this compromise actually undermines the Republican argument uh, about the dangers posed by individuals like this uh, That's this, right. this undocumented immigrant from Venezuela. Yeah, Doug, Doug is exactly right. I mean, again, here is a historic deal that both sides that could have passed the House could have easily passed the House with Democrats and Republican votes. But Republicans were caught in a situation where they didn't realize, I think, that this actually this deal would come to fruition, would, would be so constructed in a way that both sides would agree. And they said, oh, my gosh, wait, it's an election year. It's a 2024 presidential election year. We can't show any sort of concession on the border. We can't give Democrats what we consider would consider to be a win. So they struck it. And now they're coming back and saying, well, we're not going to let this go through or this piece of legislation go through unless there's a, a deal on the border. It's ridiculous. I think the American people see through this. And by the way, Democrats are going to remind the American people every single day that we did have a deal on the border, and it was the Republicans who obstructed it, not the Democrats. And Donald just, Trump's the great deal maker. he keeps telling us. Right. This was a deal that he couldn't make. And ultimately, House Republicans could have. They got, they got the language, Senate Republicans certainly. They just ultimately didn't want to because we have to bend uh, to Donald Trump every time they, that he wants us to. All right, thanks to both. You really appreciate it. Should your state leaders have any control over what you are able to see on your social media feed? Two states say yes, they should. Their argument today before the U.S. Supreme Court, that's next. Our tech lead now, the U.S. Supreme Court is hearing two landmark cases that could theoretically drastically change what you see on your social media feeds. In the cases, the states of Florida and Texas are both arguing that social media companies wield too much power, too much political influence, and that they meaning their states, Texas and Florida, should be allowed to prevent Facebook and other sites from deleting or demoting the posts of users in their states. The states say the laws are necessary to keep social media platforms from discriminating against conservatives. Matt Shears is with us now in studio. He's the president of the Computer and Communications Industry Association that is involved in this case. He's lobbying for for tech companies to be able to self-regulate as opposed to states uh, being in charge. So um, this would change the internet as we know it if the states get what they want. That's right. This would dramatically change the landscape of the internet. We brought this suit to vindicate the First Amendment rights of websites to make editorial choices about what kinds of content is appropriate for their communities. And that's because it's through those decisions that websites deliver on the kind of experience and community that they've promised to us. 
And then along come Florida and Texas and say, no, we're going to decide. We're going to dictate what kind of content is appropriate. So people who watch the show know, we've talked about this before, Section 230, which is the federal immunity law for tech platforms engaging in content moderation. Texas uh, Section 230 basically says that, just to give an example, Facebook is not responsible for what Nazis post on a site or in a post, um, and they can't be held liable for it. Uh, they try to do some content moderation, but they can't be liable. Some people just want to get rid of 230, which would really end a lot of social media sites. Now, today, Justice Amy Coney Barrett called Section 230 a landmine. Um, what's your take on it? You think you, you are, and, and the social media companies, you're in favor of Section 230. So Section 230 is a critical cornerstone to how websites moderate content. It gives them the flexibility to implement different policies and remove content and take action without the risk that those decisions will lead to liability. But this case here, this is a First Amendment case. It's about webs whether websites should have that discretion at all. And when Florida and Texas come along and say, you have to disseminate all viewpoints, well, what does that mean? God bless America and death to America are both viewpoints. Websites don't want to treat that kind of content equally. And their users don't want that. Mm -hmm. And their advertisers don't want that. In fact, I would have thought Florida and Texas don't want that either. But today in argument, I heard Texas tell the highest court in this land that websites under its law would have to treat pro-Al-Qaeda content the same way as anti-terrorist content. And frankly, that's madness. So let's talk about some of the content that gets into these, these areas, because I remember during the, the worst of the pandemic, uh, sometimes people would post something about COVID uh, and you know, the government would be uh, offended by it or think it was wrong. Now, sometimes it was wrong. Other times it was just premature. And a lot of times there was censorship of that. Some of the stuff, for example, like whether or not COVID came from a lab leak uh, was just ahead of its time, actually. And people were worried, oh, well, that's, you're, you're encouraging racism against Asian Americans, et cetera. Um, that gets into some of the tricky areas that we're talking about here, right? I mean, Al-Qaeda... That's easy enough to say, no Al-Qaeda. But what about stuff that like the government says, like this actually is damaging to the nation's uh, trust in our health institutions during a time of COVID? Well, first, let me say, if it was easy enough, it probably wouldn't have come up in oral argument today. But I think to your broader question, yeah, there's no question that websites have to make difficult decisions in real time about a nearly infinite number of subjects. And when they're making billions of decisions like that, not everyone is going to agree with every decision on every topic. But that's why we have a marketplace of ideas. Websites get to compete on the different kinds of policies they provide. Some have very free-flowing, loose policies about what kind of content's appropriate in their community. Others have very strict policies. Maybe they try and target one community for, or another. But the solution to this, if we think those decisions aren't, be made, aren't being made right, isn't to have the state come in and say, we don't like your editorial choices, so now you have to host Nazism. That's, that's just inappropriate. Sure, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think that as a user of social media, I have watched social media try to adapt, and I recognize it's challenging, obviously. But also, I think that the more social media companies shirk their responsibility, the more they're inviting intrusive government uh, to step in. Uh, and right now I see that Facebook and other organizations, Twitter certainly, or X, whatever it is, 
uh, are not taking a position when it comes to uh, false information about the election, like in 2020. Uh, but then also, like, Twitter, or, or X as it's called now, is a cesspool of, of anti-Semitism and racism. It's under the banner of free speech. But I don't even know if there's barely any content moderation. Do you see, as somebody who represents the industry, do you see what I'm talking about? There's certainly a, a broad diversity of viewpoints and policies online and different websites deal with this in different ways. And certainly some folks are going to find that some policies aren't to their liking. They're going to vote with their mouse. They're going to click to a different site. There's always a competing service a few clicks away. And that's how the marketplace will decide what kinds of content consumers want to see. And on the other side of that, advertisers are making the same decision because it's not just our choices, it's advertising choices as well. And when advertisers vote with their dollars, that also has an impact. Now, none of this is to say that websites don't have uh, broad policies and there is an entire community of practice to try and promote trust and safety online. There are best practices out there. And so there's a constant evolving process here. But the solution that Florida and Texas is, is that the state gets to be the referee of what happens on these websites. And I think that's a terrible idea. And I think the questions in today's argument suggest that the court does as well. Yeah, I mean, I just think that as somebody who is on the side of free speech, but also on the side of like, there shouldn't be death threats against individuals, like social media companies seem to be going in the wrong direction and in inviting this government intrusion, which you don't want, which they don't want, which I personally don't think is appropriate for the government to be making these decisions. Anyway, we're not gonna solve this problem right now. Matt Shears, these are difficult issues, thanks so much. Coming up, the drone mission that waits on even the smallest mistake by Russian forces, then a strike. CNN has an up-close look at the operation by Ukrainian forces. That's next. And we're back with our world lead as Russia's war on Ukraine enters its third year. Ukrainian forces are learning ways to work around advances by Russia's military and finding success with their teams of drone operators. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh caught up with a team of Ukrainian soldiers to see how they are watching and waiting to try to take advantage of any Russian mistake, no matter how small. They flit around fast, hiding each week in a new abandoned shell. Drone operators have been Ukraine's secret weapon for months, but now it is getting harder. We saw this unit in December, but their base back then has been bombed. Yet still, they hunt every day for a single mistake, a Russian who gets himself spotted. Three, four. They say the Russians are better at hiding themselves, although sometimes obviously not. Yeah, so they've just spotted a Russian soldier carrying groceries and a dog came out to greet him. So I think it's quite possible that's where some Russians are hiding. So it begins. The first strike on the window. One drone watching, the other flies into the target. And quickly, they prepare another. The hunt is no game, but has the tools of one. They lose about a quarter of their drones to Russian jamming. They see the Russians running into the blue house. Its roof clearly hit before a while ago. 
it becomes their next target. They go in again. It could be a mortar position, they think. Watch how smaller explosions send fragments flying out. The Russians often have to stay injured inside the damaged building to not draw in more drones. They go in again. It could be a mortar position, they think. Then suddenly, the power goes out. The internet down and screens black, but remarkably, they barely miss a beat. The commander sparks up his cell phone 5G with the drone feed and a chat group directing the entire attack just from an iPhone. The smoke grows in intensity. They think they might have hit a weapons store. They never see Russian faces or taste the smoke. The blast noise takes a few seconds to travel to them. But this is still killing, up close yet far away. Strike, launch, repeat, all day. Sometimes it's cheers here, screams there, other times the other way around. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Kherson, Ukraine. And our thanks to Nick Payton Walsh for that report. Now, sticking in our world lead, we go to Gaza, where four aid drops were made today in an attempt to help an increasingly desperate population. One of those drops missed its mark, leading to a scene of chaos on the shores of the Mediterranean. CNN's Jeremy Diamond offered this report. Today, Gaza's humanitarian crisis looks like this. Palestinians desperate for food, paddling and swimming out to sea after at least one plane airdropping aid appeared to miss its target, sending pallets of food crashing into the sea. In central and southern Gaza, hundreds crowding the beaches to try and secure their piece of the rations. But this is the other side of desperation. Groups of men wielding whips and bats, steering crowds away from their precious cargo. Months of hunger and war triggering fights for survival when there is not enough for everyone. This is what they are fighting over. Ration packs, a lifeline for the lucky few. I was lucky and able to get one of these aids. But what about all those other people who were not able to get this aid? Look, this one didn't get any, and this one didn't get any. But so much more is needed. I'm asking from the Arab nations. We are thankful for the aid through the parachutes, but we need more, and we need it distributed in a better way. This will not stop our hunger. We don't need a capsule. Because when we eat this, we will eat it. And that's it. It's finished. But nowhere are people more desperate for food aid than in northern Gaza, where women and children wait in long lines for what now passes for food, a cloudy soup mixture made with dirty water and whatever grains can be found. There was no food or drinking water, no flour or anything. There was no cooking oil, not even drinking water. 
Death is better than this. Humanitarian aid deliveries this month dropped by half compared to January, according to a United Nations relief agency, which blamed Israeli military operations and the collapse of civil order in Gaza. In northern Gaza, aid groups suspending aid delivery amid looting and attacks on aid trucks, leaving many with few options to stay alive. Look, we are eating animal feed against our will, but have to eat it. Without food or clean water, their voices are all they have left. The suffering of Gaza is extremely difficult. Where are the authorities? Where is the government? Israel made us hungry and our government made us hungry and people are stealing. Shame on you Arabs, where are you? But after nearly five months of war, is the world listening? Jeremy Diamond, CNN, Tel Aviv. And our thanks to Jeremy Diamond for that report. Coming up, a CNN exclusive investigation. A key figure in the 2020 fake electors plot tried to conceal damning posts on a secret Twitter account. What was posted and the legal problems this now pose next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the all-out effort to stop the execution of Ivan Cantu. Ivan Cantu is a man on death row in the state of Texas. He's convicted of killing his cousin. He insists he is innocent. Sister Helen Prejean and Martin Sheen are both here to advocate for Governor Abbott to stop the state from killing him. Plus, behind the book bans in Florida, the organized effort pulling publications with naked characters taken off the shelves. Does this effort go too far? Is it censorship? Is this what parents really want? You might be surprised at the response from the woman leading this charge and leading this hour, an investigation by CNN's K-File team, which has uncovered social media posts that a Trump ally concealed from prosecutors. Posts that show he was pushing extreme election subversion strategies that could now put him in grave legal peril. We're talking about Kenneth Chesbro. Chesbro is the right-wing attorney who helped devise the fake electors plot, the scheme to appoint fake presidential electors that Republican legislatures would then use to overturn the actual results of the 2020 popular vote in key states. Chesbro has already pleaded guilty to a crime in the Georgia election subversion case, and he cooperated with prosecutors in other states so that he could avoid additional charges Let's get more details from CNN's Marshall Cohen, uh, who is breaking the story with K-File. Marshall, tell us about these tweets, and could Chesbro be at legal risk for seemingly hiding them? Jake, he could. Listen, when you cooperate, you need to tell the truth. And CNN's K-File team uncovered a secret Twitter that Chesbro concealed from prosecutors in Michigan. There are dozens of tweets from 2020 that undercut what he later told prosecutors about his role in the scheme. 
Now, we've also obtained the audio of Chesborough's Michigan interview, so you can hear it for yourself. When he was asked directly if he used social media, if he had a Twitter, he said no. Listen to this. Do you have any social media presence, uh, Facebook, Instagram, no, Twitter? I, I mean, uh, no. Uh, I, I, for whatever, I mean, before... Any uh, yeah. uh, alternate IDs that you're using for that kind of stuff? No, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't do any tweeting. Now, maybe, maybe he had good reason to hide those tweets because they reveal that even before the 2020 election, Chesborough promoted a far more aggressive fake elector strategy than he later led on. So here's one example, Jake. I'll play for you what he told the prosecutors, and then I'll show you the contradictory tweet. He repeatedly told investigators that the fake electors were purely a contingency to be used only if Trump won any of his election lawsuits. Here's what he told the prosecutors. Listen to this. So Eastman, he had this idea that state legislatures could somehow be effective in overturning the courts, which I thought was ridiculous. I wanted conditional language in all the states that I suggested three times to the Trump campaign on December 12th that they make it conditional on winning litigation. Okay, so look at this from Chesborough's anonymous Twitter account called Badger Pundit. Literally, on the day that Trump lost, he wrote that Trump doesn't have to get courts to declare him the winner. He just needs to convince Republican legislatures that the election was systematically rigged. It's the tweet right here. You can see it on your screen. He's totally dismissing the role of the courts, embracing the strategy that you just heard him call ridiculous. Jake, this is just one of many examples where his tweets and his testimony, they don't line up. Is there any reaction today from the Michigan prosecutors to this news? And how are Chesbro's lawyers defending what seem clear contradictions? Well, I want to be clear that Chesbro hasn't been charged with any crimes in Michigan's, but the experts told us that this could put him in more legal jeopardy. The Michigan attorney general already charged the fake electors in that state last year. They have an ongoing investigation, and their office told us that they are interested in these new revelations about the Twitter, and they will be, quote, looking into the matter. Now, Jake, we also spoke to Chesborough's attorneys. They confirmed that the secret account does belong to him, and they acknowledge that there are some inconsistencies here. They have now gone back to the states where he cooperated and told investigators all about the tweets. But they're also drawing a distinction between Ken Chesborough, the serious lawyer, and Badger Pundit, the online persona. This is what his attorney, Robert Langford, told us about his client, Chesborough. Quote, when he was doing volunteer work for the campaign, he was very specific and hunkered down into being the lawyer that he is and gave specific legal advice based on things that he thought were legitimate legal challengers versus Badger Pundit, who is this guy over there just being a goof. That's their defense, Jake. He was just being a goof. Yeah, calling him an other guy over there. It's the same guy. CNN's Marshall Cohen. Thanks for that story. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, on, on one level, I mean, I suppose, like, if the guy's an election liar, then people should expect him to lie about other things, too. Um, but do you think Kenneth Chesbro is in even more legal jeopardy than he was before, potentially? And might this have an impact on his agreement to cooperate in the Georgia election subversion case? Well, Jake, yes, absolutely. Kenneth Chesbro is facing more legal jeopardy now. 
and he is not and never has been a viable cooperator for prosecutors in Georgia. Now, first of all, as to his new statements, he has apparently provided misleading at best, outright false at worst information to Michigan investigators, to Georgia investigators, and to other investigators around the country. That defense we just saw from his lawyer is utterly nonsensical. It doesn't get him out of the fact that he provided them incomplete and perhaps incorrect information. But the other thing to keep in mind is as long as Kenneth Chesbrough is out there giving two different stories, not fully embracing what he did, not admitting what he did, he is not a viable cooperator for the Fulton County DA. They gave Kenneth Chesbrough a softball deal. They let him plead out to probation. And the reason they gave is, well, he's cooperating. No, he is not. He has not come clean. He is a failed cooperator. That's a black eye for the Georgia district attorney as well. What, what do you make of the contradiction in just the basic question, do you have social media, where he seemed to say no, and then obviously now his lawyers are admitting that Badger Pundit was him? Yeah, Marshall and the K-File team pulled the exact right piece of tape there. There's no ambiguity to that. And to prosecutors' credit, they don't just ask him, were you tweeting? They ask him straight up, did you have some sort of alter ego or burner account, or were you tweeting under any other name? And he says, no, that's the lie, that's the contradiction, and that's where he could be in trouble. Today, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, this is in the hush money case, uh, asked for a gag order in the case. Uh, this is Donald Trump's accused of uh, falsifying business records to cover up the payments to Stormy Daniels. The trial set to begin March 25th. What would that gag order cover potentially? So it sounds like what the DA has proposed here is really a fairly narrow gag order that actually almost exactly mirrors the federal gag order. What this would do if adopted by the judge is prevent Donald Trump from making statements that could interfere with or influence the jurors, the witnesses, the courtroom staff, and the prosecutor staff other than the DA himself. I actually think, I'm not a fan of gag orders. I never used to seek them when I was a prosecutor, but I think in this case, it's appropriately narrow. It still allows Donald Trump to publicly criticize the case against him. He can say, this is a bogus case. He can say, I'm not guilty. He can even say the DA has bad motives here. So I think what the gag order sets aside is narrow and fair. Trump's team is also asking that Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, who facilitated those payments to Stormy Daniels on behalf of Trump be barred from testifying. Can they do that? Can the Trump team bar Michael Cohen from testifying? No, that is a ridiculous request. They have to know that if you have a witness who you think is impeachable, has lied or will lie, the answer is he gets to take the stand if one party chooses to call him, and then the other party gets to cross-examine him vigorously. And then it is up to the jury to decide whether they believe or disbelieve that witness. There is no such thing as a judge saying, I don't believe this witness. I think he's going to lie. Therefore, he's off the stand. The DA is going to call Michael Cohen. They will assume all the risk that comes with that but it's up to the jury, not a judge. All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's go to the 2024 lead. Let's cue the music. Yes, the race for 2024 has moved to the critical battleground state of Michigan. This is the first battleground state primary or caucus. Let's bring in CNN's Eva McKen. She's in Grand Rapids following the Haley campaign. Kristen Holmes, of course, covers the Trump campaign for us. Kristen, Trump is well on his way to the Republican nomination, of course, but he has been unable to win over a substantial block of Republican voters. It's a minority, but it's still a big chunk. 
A huge chunk. I mean, Donald Trump on Saturday night said that the Republican Party had never been so united, but our exit polls told a different story. In South Carolina, and the one I want to point to in particular, showed that 31 percent of the South Carolina voters would be unhappy if Donald Trump was the nominee. That is a huge block there. So the question for his team is, how do you fix that? Is that possible going into a general election, which we believe he will be the nominee up against Joe Biden? Now, part of that is that they believe overall that some of these conservatives and in conservative leaning independents will start going to Donald Trump if the option is just Donald Trump or Joe Biden. But that's not everybody. The other part of this is what we saw them do back in Iowa. This is very strategic. What they are going to do in several of these states is try to build out the data that they have from the last several years to expand the MAGA electorate. That means focusing on people who are conservative, right-leaning, who maybe don't know that much about Donald Trump, who have supported him in the past, have donated in the past, but never voted for him. That's going to be part of their strategy there. We also know they really want to turn to that general election because of this. They know they need to build out their infrastructure, particularly in those critical ground sta- uh, battleground states, and that's what they want to turn their attention to. So Eva McCann in South Carolina Saturday, the split was 60% Trump, 40% Haley, roughly. This is how Haley tried to spin a 20-point deficit in her home state. Take a listen. I'm going to count it. I know 40% is not 50%. But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. How is the Haley campaign trying to set expectations for Michigan, the Republican primary and the results tomorrow night? Well, Jake, by not setting expectations at all, in fact, they are raising the bar for former President Donald Trump. She told us today that right now she is raising every red flag possible. And she argues that Trump in all of these early contests is not winning by a mandate, that he's not getting above 90 percent. And what the last few weeks have actually illustrated is that he is going to have a lot of problems in a general election with independent and moderate voters. And Eva, uh, the Koch brothers have announced they're going to stop trying to support Haley uh, in her presidential quest. Given that news, how much longer can she have on the campaign trail? Uh, You know, you need money to run for president. She says she's going to stay in until Super Tuesday, which is, uh, I think, a week from tomorrow. Might that be her last stand? Well, it's unclear at this stage, Jake. Listen, she's got 10 fundraisers coming up. And her team says after South Carolina that they actually raised a million dollars. And a lot of that money came from people donating under $200. But it's not clear what upcoming state she can actually win. I put that question to her. Listen to what she told me. We have 21 states and territories that are getting ready to happen. Why don't we wait and see what happens? We don't have to have a crystal ball and say this is going to happen or that's going to happen. We don't live in Russia. We don't anoint kings. We have elections. Let people vote. Can you name a single state you can win? I can name that 70% of Americans don't want Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Now, for her part, Haley already on to Minnesota this evening, where she is continuing to make her case to voters. And when I was speaking to uh, voters here today uh, in Michigan, Jake, they tell me that that she's glad that she's still 
in this contest, that they don't believe that she should be bullied out. And they are hoping for some sort of miracle, for something maybe with uh, Trump's legal cases to happen, <coughs> for her to ultimately become uh, viable uh, once and for all. Jake? All right, Eva McKenna and Kristen Holmes, thanks to both of you. CNN will have special coverage of tomorrow's presidential primaries in Michigan. <coughs> Look for results and analysis starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up here on The Lead, that controversial ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court about IVF, that one where the wrath of God quote was used to justify classifying frozen embryos as children. Democrats in both Alabama and Congress are pushing back, and House Republicans are trying to make sure one side of this debate will become law. Stay with us. We have to act immediately and put politics to the side and address this issue once and for all, restoring the rights and the decisions back to women and their doctors, not politicians. That was the Alabama State House minority leader today, a Democrat, pushing a new bill that would clearly define an embryo as not a child, a bill that is in direct response to a ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court that classified frozen embryos as Children, this debate is, of course, not playing out at only the state level in Alabama. House Speaker Mike Johnson put out a statement in response to the Alabama ruling. Quote, I applaud the Alabama legislature for immediately working to protect life and ensure that IVF treatment is available to families throughout the state, unquote. What's curious about that statement is that Speaker Johnson is one of 125 Republican House members who co-sponsor legislation called the Life at Conception Act, that bill defines a human being to, quote, include each member of the species Homo sapiens at all stages of life, including the moment of fertilization or cloning, unquote. That would include a frozen embryo, of course. And the current House version includes no exception for IVF, for in vitro fertilization. The latest Senate version does have an exemption. Um, I, I want to bring in Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois to discuss. Senator uh, Duckworth, how do you reconcile Speaker Johnson saying that IVF should be legal and protected and at the same time supporting the Life at Conception Act, which, as I understand it, would declare frozen embryos to be people? Well, you can't believe him. I mean, bottom line, <laughs> The, the point is Republicans have been working for decades to define life as beginning at the point of uh, fertilization of the eggs. You, they can't have it both ways. They can't go after women and say, hey, we don't trust women to make decisions about their own reproductive health care. And we're going to define a fertilized egg as a human being with personhood rights. Uh, and at the same time, because they know that IVF is highly popular among the American people, say, oh, oh, except for IVF, you can't have it both ways. And so what I say to the American people is, listen to Republicans when they tell you exactly who they are. They believe life begins at the moment an egg is fertilized, which makes it completely uh, 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 unable to be reconciled with IVF treatments, which, of course, uh, can often require the, um, the discardation, uh, you know, discarding uh, non-viable embryos, for example. Yeah, so you have been public talking about how both of your children were conceived via IVF. Um, first of all, explain how this measure might have affected uh, you had you been living in Alabama. Like, what? Why, it, why is there um, this conflict between 
saying that IVF uh, is a person and being able to, to do it? Well, this is the same fear, uh, type of fear um, that's a consequence of the de definition of life is beginning at a fertilized egg that doctors uh, are also going through in terms of women who are presenting at in emergency rooms, um, you know, where, where their pregnancy is threatening their life. And doctors are telling women, go sit in the parking lot and bleed out for a while before we can take care of you until we know for sure you're almost dead before we can, uh, you know, perform an abortion on you. It's the same thing. When I um, had an IVF, we fertilized five eggs. Um, we discarded three of them because they were non-viable. The doctors could tell that uh, they were uh, not going to proceed any further because those the, the eggs were not maturing. Um, in that case, those by discarding those three eggs, my doctor could have been guilty of manslaughter or even murder in a place like Alabama, uh, where now life begins at exactly the moment of, of fertilization. So a doctor who discards three eggs could be considered to be uh, committing manslaughter. Worse, what about, you know, my, I have one egg that, um, what is egg that is in, um, that we are, that's in storage. Am I guilty of manslaughter? Am I guilty? What happens when my husband and I decide to either donate that egg, that fertilized egg for, um, uh, to another couple, or I could donate it for scientific purposes? Am I now guilty of manslaughter? It's very scary, uh, you know, Jake. And, Many of these groups like Texas right, right for Life say that if you go through IVF, you must implant every single fertilized egg, which is just not viable. So this is becoming a very tricky political issue for Republicans. The National Republican Senatorial Campaign told candidates to, quote, clearly and concisely reject efforts by the government to restrict IVF, unquote. Former President Trump is also expressing his support for IVF. Um, how much is this going to be an issue in the upcoming election, do you think? It's going to be a significant issue in the upcoming elections, just as access to reproductive choice will be a major issue in this upcoming election. And they can't run away from this. I talked. I started talking about this as a consequence of the move to overturn Roe v. Wade back in 2018 when Neil Gorsuch was, uh, Gorsuch was being uh, confirmed. I said the same thing when Amy Comey Barrett was being confirmed. This is going to be the consequence of the fall of Roe v. Wade and when you define life as beginning at fertilization, you can't also say that you support IVF. It doesn't work. That's not the way science works. And so I, Republicans can try to cover themselves all they want, but at the end of the day, they are the ones, after decades of effort, who put this into place. And I laid this completely at the feet of my Republican colleagues and Donald Trump. Senator Tammy Duckworth, Democrat from the great state of Illinois, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. In the state of Texas, some rather big names are pleading with the governor, Greg Abbott, to stop an execution. Sister Helen Prejean and Martin Sheen are two of those names. They will be here. Why they believe this execution needs to stop, that's next. Our law and justice lead now. Last ditch efforts are underway to delay the execution of a Texas death row inmate who has maintained his innocence for more than 20 years. And today, one of those efforts failed. The Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles today did not recommend clemency or a reprieve. Now, the final hope of Ivan Cantu rests in litigation before the courts and advocacy from individuals, including Kim Kardashian, who today posted, the state will execute Ivan Cantu in two days. Cantu and his attorneys are claiming multiple issues with his conviction in the 2000 murders of his cousin James Mosquita and his cousin's fiance, Amy Kitchen. They claim the state's key witness 
Key witnesses gave false testimony at trial. Plus, they argue new evidence backs up a story Cantu relayed at the time of the killings. Let's go to CNN's Ed Lavendera in Dallas, who's been covering this for CNN. Ed, amid this 11th hour effort to delay Cantu's execution, one of the jurors who helped put him on death row is now in his corner? Yeah, not just one juror, Jake, but three jurors who sent Ivan Cantu to death row back in 2001 have come forward saying uh, that the 50-year-old death row inmate deserves a new trial. The jury foreman wrote in an opinion piece in the Austin American Statesman newspaper, clearly trying to get the attention of state leaders here. This is what he wrote. This is Jeff Calhoun. He says, we jurors did not hear the truth you assume you would hear from a person under oath. Bottom line, I feel like I was fooled. This trial had some fabrication, and the course of investigative action is incomplete. And now, many people close to Ivan Cantu will tell you, Jake, that uh, early on, the prosecution's case seemed open and shut. But in the last three or four years, newly discovered evidence uh, has really kind of raised serious questions about Cantu's, uh, the quality of the defense he got. His, his defense attorneys called no witnesses on his behalf. And there's also serious questions about whether or not two key witnesses lied uh, uh, in that testimony. Uh, one of the key witnesses, uh, they say, lied about a watch that Ivan Cantu had stolen that was actually never stolen and returned to the victim's families. And another key witness has recanted the testimony that he had made that I, were, uh, he said Ivan Cantu had confessed to all of this. We spoke with Cantu last week as he prepared here for the final days leading up to his execution. I'll be the first to tell you, if I was on the jury, I would have convicted myself absolutely with the case, with the case that was presented, you know, by the prosecution and with the, the defense not doing anything. Give me a new trial with, with the team and with the attorney that I've got today. And yeah, I mean, we've already discredited the, the state's case, you know, on appeal and we would be able to do it in a courtroom also with whatever they were going to bring. I just, I just have to brace for impact. The worst case scenario, um, they ignore everything and place me on that gurney and kill me. And Jake, full disclosure here, Ivan Cantu and I went to grade school together for several years. And when we spoke to him last week, that's the first time that I had seen him in nearly 40 years. But here, with two days left, his legal options are quickly running out. Jake? Ed Lavendera in Dallas for us. Thank you so much. With us now to discuss actor and progressive activist Martin Sheen and anti-death penalty activist sister Helen Prejean. Both are fighting to stop Cantu's execution. They're backing a petition with 60,000 signatures, delivering it to the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals and Collin County District Attorney. Um, Martin, let me start with you. You have long been devoted to social justice causes. Uh, what is it about Ivan Cantu's case that drew your attention? Well, uh, clearly the first step was uh, Sister Prejean, uh, who asked me to just investigate on my own, and I did. And uh, uh, your report there, uh, I saw a, a longer report with him uh, on uh, Anderson Cooper's show this past Friday. And he interviewed uh, Matt Duff, who did a documentary called Cousins in Blood. You can see it on YouTube. And that is the most powerful source of evidence that turns this whole case on its head. And that's why I got so totally involved. And now we're down to less than 48 hours. So it's critical that we get a stay for Ivan and that the truth come out, it can save his life and even exonerate him. So that's what we're trying to do. Sister, Martin, what's the name of it again? Cousins in Blood? It's called Cousins in Blood. It's on YouTube. Okay. And it's made by 
Duff. Okay. I just want to make sure people know where to, where to search for it so they can watch for themselves. Sister Helen, Collin County District Attorney Greg Willis said he remained fully convinced that Ivan Cantu brutally murdered James Mosquita and Amy Kitchen. Um, how likely do you think it is that the courts will stay his execution? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I hope they do. We have legitimate issues, but people like Ivan get caught in a catch-22. By the time, because he had miserable, abysmal defense, who had no witnesses, no investigation, so he presented nothing. But now when you get investigation like a Mad Duff doing it, and we get the new information that show the key state witnesses lied, and that's what convinced the foreperson, uh, uh, Jeff uh, Calhoun, he said, Look, we were invested with the responsibility of deciding if a fellow citizen lives or dies, and we didn't get the truth at trial. It wasn't fair to us. That's why he's made his statement. We have, I'm, I believe it's going to rest finally in the governor's office. And so we have a full-blown campaign to the people to just say there are all these questions over the actual guilt of this man Ivan Cantu. I'm not surprised that DAs dig in their heels, say, oh, no, it was a fair trial uh, and the whole bit. And it's been all these years of appeal, but it wasn't. That's in theory what it was supposed to be. So our full blown call out to the people is to get to Governor Abbott. He has one of the last vestiges of the divine right of kings. He's a safety valve in all this. When justice is not done in the courts or you question it, that he can grant a reprieve long enough to be able to look at the new evidence, which no court is yet willing to hear. So what we're asking people to do, anybody within earshot of this, is to text the numbers 668-366, and in the message, write, save. And that's going to send a message directly to Governor Rabbit. There are too many questions about the integrity of this conviction. Just grant a 30-day reprieve long enough to have an investigative hearing to see if there's any substance to what has emerged. What's that number again? So glad you asked. It's 668-366. The message right, save, S-A-V-E, save. Um, Martin, you've grappled with these issues through your day job. Um, there's a West Wing episode where President Bartlett had the opportunity to stop an execution of a criminal, but doesn't. And you, yeah. once, said, you once said that you wished President Bartlett had stopped the execution, but you realized the character was a, was a politician calculating all the angles. Right now, Texas Governor Abbott might be calculating angles. Uh, he holds this power to grant Cantu a reprieve. What, what would your message be to him? Well, you know, uh, my attorney, uh, who was the advisor on that episode on the West Wing, uh, said that I had to, you know, refrain from a stay of execution. I said, but I would never do that. And he said, but Barton would, uh, Bartlett would. So you're not Bart Bartlett if you if you uh, end it. So, yeah, it was a political decision. But it was very clear that um, uh, I, I couldn't do it personally. I don't know of anybody that can. And I have a great uh, sympathy for people that we authorize to do our killing for us. You know, um, I, I believe sincerely that uh, if you su support capital punishment, you must look life square in the eye 
and choose death. And that's all you get. Um, Martin Sheen and Sister Helen Prejean, who would remind us uh, that the number is 668-366 and the word is save. 668-366, the word is save. Thank you so much for being with us to discuss this issue. Uh, please come back again. Thank Thanks, you so Jay. much, Jay. Great show. Coming up next, incredible video of a desperate attempt to deliver aid in Gaza. That effort was ruined. See the chaotic scene on the beach ahead. We are back with our world lead in just moments ago. President Biden was telling reporters that he hopes to have a ceasefire and hostage deal in place for the Israeli Hamas war by the end of the weekend. Take a listen. Well, I hope by the, the beginning of the weekend. I mean, the end of the weekend. At least my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. My hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. Okay, thank you. His hope is that by next Monday, there'll be a ceasefire. CNN's MJ Lee is at the White House for us. And CNN's chief national security correspondent, Alex Marquardt, is also here. MJ, that's a big announcement from the president uh, to be given in an ice cream shop. Uh, What role is the U.S. playing here? Yeah, sometimes, Jake, as you know, uh, big news comes from the president when he's talking freely with reporters in that kind of settings uh, precisely. But the president uh, appearing to say that he is hopeful and optimistic that the pause, a ceasefire that a lot of the negotiators have been working towards uh, could begin by the end of the weekend. He said perhaps by Monday. That, of course, is within uh, a week or so that we are talking about. And it would be an incredibly significant development, of course, because it would be the first uh, cessation in the fighting in the Israel-Hamas war since that first seven-day truce we saw at the end of November. And we've, of course, been following the negotiations that have been ongoing for the last last many weeks or so. And we know that all of the negotiators that are involved have been racing against the clock, essentially, to try to get this deal done by Ramadan. And we have been talking about Ramadan as sort of this deadline, because that is when uh, Israel has said that uh, IDF would begin its ground incursion into Rafah in southern Gaza if a deal is not struck uh, before then. And of course, uh, my colleague Alex Marquardt has been doing some great reporting on how uh, Hamas has in recent days sort of softened some of its demands demands and chiefly the most important one being the demand for Israel to pull out of Gaza altogether and bring a a permanent end uh, to the war. So the president, uh, uh, again, uh, seeming to sound optimistic that this could be in place in a matter of days, Jake. So uh, thank you so much, MJ. Alex, uh, in addition to what uh, MJ just uh, said, giving you credit for the reporting, uh, that that Hamas's uh, requirement, previous requirement, that Israel pull out entirely from Gaza for the ceasefire to happen. Um, what other uh, requirements, uh, requests, demands have they softened on? And how soon can this happen? Do you think this could actually happen at the end of the weekend? It could. And in fact, a senior administration official I spoke with just yesterday said that this could happen within days, that in fact, the the distance between the sides was not all that difficult to bridge. But everybody you talk to cautions that these are very fragile and, and fluid discussions. Now, three weeks ago, Hamas put forward a counterproposal that essentially Israel dismissed out of hand, Prime Minister Netanyahu calling it delusional. And essentially, the, the, the talks came to a standstill. Then there were these talks 
talks on Friday between the CIA director, his Egyptian and Israeli counterparts, uh, the Qatari prime minister. Um, and, and that appears to have gotten things back on track. And what I'm told by multiple sources is that Hamas is backing down on some of those key demands, at least for now, at least to get this first phase of an agreement off the ground. Primarily, reducing the number of Palestinian prisoners that they are demanding that Israel release, dropping the demand that the IDF leave Gaza altogether, and dropping the demand that Israel end this war altogether. That's not to say that they're not going to demand that later on, but this is about an initial phase that would see Israeli hostages released, women, children, elderly, the sick, uh, assumed to be around 40 or more of them, and result in a significant pause in the fighting that could last weeks. All right, Alex Marquardt and MJ Lee, thanks to both of you. Coming up, behind a book ban campaign in Florida, the push to cover up illustrated characters without clothes or pull some classics completely off the shelves. Stay with us. In our politics lead, as you may have read, many in the state of Florida are on a book banning spree. We've also seen a few cases where school librarians colored over illustrations in children's books. So is this in the best interests of the children? Legendary author and illustrator Maurice Sendak once said, quote, grownups desperately need to feel safe and then they project onto the kids. But what none of us seem to realize is how smart kids are. They don't like what we write for them, what we dish up for them, because it's vapid. So they'll go for the hard words. They'll go for the hard concepts. They'll go for the stuff where they can learn something. Not didactic things, but passionate things. As CNN's Carlos Suarez reports for us now, Maurice Sendak is one of the authors at the center of one woman's crusade to ban books, and now even Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has cautioned some of this stuff is just going too far. At a school district meeting in Indian River County, Florida. Throughout this entire book, there is pictures of um, people having sex and they're nude. It says, I quote, Jennifer Pippin read from a book she says doesn't belong in public schools. Her objection was the only item before a committee of parents and educators who will decide whether the book is removed. No one spoke in favor of keeping the book. The committee decides in April. A prolific book challenger, Pippin heads the county's conservative parental rights group, Moms for Liberty. She knows the process well. We need to remove these materials because they are prohibited per all the laws and statutes. How many total number of books have you challenged yourself? Myself here in Indian River County, 242. Out of these, a couple of titles stand out. The literary classic In the Night Kitchen by Maurice Sendak and a newer book, Unicorns Are the Worst, about a grumpy goblin. Both have illustrations of characters without clothes. Pippin challenged both books under a Florida education law which allows for the removal of a public school library book that depicts or describes sexual conduct. In her formal objection, Pippin said the images were pornographic, but in our interview, she walked back that claim. What's pornographic about them? So they're not pornographic. They contain nudity. But nudity alone is not harmful to minors. According to Florida law, the content would have to appeal to a prurient interest, be patently offensive or without literary or artistic value. I keep going back to nudity that is harmful to children. And so a goblin's backside 
on the face of it, to me, doesn't seem like it is harmful to children. Absolutely. So again, you and I can agree on that, but some other parents may not agree. Pippin told the district to remove the books or draw on clothing using permanent markers to cover up the nudity. So school librarians drew shorts, overalls, and shirts on the illustrations. To see these drawings, you think that genuinely could adversely affect a child who otherwise may not know what the backside of a goblin looks like or ever thought? Sure. So if a child is possibly maybe being raped by an adult and, you know, maybe the, the seeing the nudity in itself, maybe just not the backside, but seeing something nude could, you know, be detrimental to them. From her home office in Orlando, Stefana Farrell couldn't believe it. She's part of the Florida Freedom to Read Project, an organization that tracks thousands of books being challenged in the state. I have an eight-year-old. As soon as we heard that unicorns are the worst, had a drawing, uh, was getting drawn on, my son wanted to read it. And so we read through the book and he said to me, Mom, she took out the funny part. Why would they do that? Farrell said covering up the images is censorship. The publisher of Unicorns Are the Worst agrees, telling CNN, quote, there should be no place for this type of literary vandalism in our schools and libraries. These things are happening because the law is broad and the rules are punitive and people are scared and we're, we've lost track of good judgment and common sense. School libraries across Florida have removed more than 1,400 titles during the 2022-2023 school year, according to writer advocacy group PEN America. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who signed the law making all of this possible, now admits some book objections have gone too far. He wants state lawmakers to limit the challenges. If you're somebody who doesn't have a kid in school and you're going to object to 100 books, no, I don't think that that's appropriate. All right, so under a proposal moving in the state legislature, school districts would be able to fine individuals $100 for a book challenge after they've unsuccessfully objected to five books. Lawmakers are also looking whether to limit challenges from people who don't have children at the school where the book is located. Jake, Jennifer Pippen told us she challenged Unicorns Are the Worst, the book with the naked goblin, on behalf of a grandparent. Oh, God. All right. Carlos Suarez, thank you so much. I can't believe they would do that to In the Night Kitchen by Maurice Sendak. That is just preposterous. Coming up next, the major moment scientists expect tomorrow morning in that mission to the moon. Stay with us. Time for our out-of-this-world lead. Odie's mission to the moon is already coming to an end. Intuitive Machines, that's the name of the company, Announced today, its moon lander Odysseus, Odie for short, is expected to lose contact with scientists by tomorrow morning, sooner than they had hoped. Odie made an historic landing on the moon last week, of course, but tipped over on its side after touching down on the moon. Its antenna are currently pointed in the wrong direction, NASA says. The lander did manage to send these pictures of its flight down to the moon. Odysseus will keep communicating with flight controllers until sunlight no longer touches its solar panels. If you ever miss an episode of Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcast. The news continues right now on CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.